Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. C-D-T. Hello, loyal listeners. In this episode, you're in store for another amazing conversation from CDT's The Future of Speech Online. That's an event we held back in December along with the Charles Koch Institute, the Freedom Forum Institute, and 1A from WAMU and NPR. In this one, it's Nicole Wong, former White House Deputy CTO and now Senior Advisor at Albright Stone Ridge Group, sitting down with Jeffrey Rosen, the President and CEO of the Constitution Center. They had a wide-ranging conversation about the future of speech online, and they did not shy away from the tough questions around what responsibility internet platforms have in addressing issues such as misinformation, hate speech, and harassment. Enjoy their conversation. Thank you so much. And Nicole, I was so thrilled when you asked me to have this conversation. Better than me being up here alone. No, no, not at all. (laughs) There are a few uh, magazine articles that deserve 10-year anniversary celebrations, but this was my favorite article ever, the, the one I thought was most interesting, because 10 years ago, through with your guidance, we put our fingers on the central challenge of free speech at the dawn of the Internet age, namely what to do when lawyers for private companies, and you were then uh, Deputy General Counsel at Google, are more powerful than any king or president or Supreme Court justice when it comes to who can speak and who can be heard online. So what I want to do in this really meaningful conversation, uh, meaningful because I know we're going to shed some real light, is begin by identifying what was the problem we were talking about 10 years ago, then talk about what is the problem today and how is it different, and then begin to think about some solutions. So when we talked, you told me about your struggles with Thailand. Tell us about what Thailand was doing in Google and what your response was and that, how that exemplified for you the challenge of the content decisions that you as Google's decider were being asked to make. Yeah, so first, thank you for traveling down from Philadelphia to be here. I would say, like, so in this article, Jeff raised this issue of, like, Nicole's the decider as called in the legal department at Google because she decides all these content issues. A, it was never just me. B, it was a joke propagated by Alex McGillivray, who's sitting in the back. Um, who was working with me at the time. And every time my children hear this whole idea of, like, I'm the decider, they're like, Mom, you can't even make a decision on what vegetable we're having for dinner. Are you kidding? Um, But at the time at Google, um, one of the things in the mid-2000s that we did was we, we had acquired YouTube, which really changed the landscape for how we had to deal with multiple countries, in part because it was visual. So instead of just having text, um, in languages that some people couldn't read and some people could, you suddenly had this medium that was instantly global because the pictures would tell it all, but they were understood in different countries in different ways. Um, and Thailand was one of them. So in Thailand in 2006, a number of videos that were critical of Thailand's king uh, went up on the Internet um, they were depictions of him with like a foot on top of his head, which is very offensive in Thailand. Pictures of him as a monkey um, and other things. And in Thailand, it is illegal. Um, they have a les majestés law, which makes it illegal to criticize the king. And there were a whole bunch of things that had to fall into place for us to deal with that. One is to understand the law. Um, the second was to understand sort of what videos were at issue. The, the government had contacted us about 20 different videos that they felt were violating their law. And then there was the hardest decision about what is it we're going to do about it. Um, at that time, uh, 
we kind of decided, well, maybe we won't do anything about it. We'll just leave it up. We don't have anybody based in Thailand, so do we really care? Um, and I eventually went to Thailand um, and sat down with both the government, but also with people who uh, were part of internet associations and internet companies and, and civil society in Thailand to understand the problem. Um, and one of the most important conversations I had was actually with our U.S. embassy officials in Thailand to explain to me, they're like, this is a country that has had 21 coups in the last 30 years. The king, who is now 80-something years old, is the only stability they have ever known. And so his stature in that country is something akin to George Washington, Elvis, and Jesus Christ all rolled into one. And all of a sudden, like, a whole bunch of things made much more sense to me about why we were getting this reaction. And it was not just from the government, but what it's, it was from the people themselves um, who were really concerned about this content. And that, for me as a First Amendment lawyer, changed a bunch of the ways I thought about what our responsibilities were as a global platform. Um, in the end, we decided to respect the democratically created law around Lesbos to stay by blocking only for Thai IP addresses access to videos that were clearly in violation of the Les Majesté law. That's kind of a narrowing of what the original ask was. I will tell you, and I, I feel like sometimes you make these decisions and everyone's like, well, that, that's the answer. Um, I am still deeply conflicted about whether that was the right answer. Um, I am deeply conflicted about whether IP blocking is the right solution for us on global content. I am deeply conflicted about what the parameters are that we set for deciding obeying one country's laws versus another. Um, and I don't think, now looking back 10 years, right, there's a bunch on the internet that has changed, and yet the difficulty of some of those decisions, I think, is, is the consistent thing, which is that they are always hard. Um, and and will probably always be difficult. Wonderfully summed up. So 10 years ago, one of the central problems was what the content policy should be and how to apply them locally and globally. After that decision, there were calls of global IP blocking by some yeah. countries, which you nobly resisted, and in some cases were shut down in places like Turkey as a result. So there's still a debate about content policies, and Facebook as well as Google and Twitter are facing increasing pressure to ban ever more speech that the First Amendment protects. The European uh, Court has imposed its right to be forgotten, which is much less First Amendment friendly than things were back then. So uh, describe how the question of content blocking looks different 10 years now than it did then, and how the pressures seem to make it harder for the companies to basically embrace the First Amendment values that you were trying to apply. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, so 10 years ago, I was just like looking back at some of the stuff that I was doing 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I was testifying before the Senate on why we were withdrawing from China because of the increasing censorship in China, because of the hacking of Google's systems and its targeting of Chinese dissidents on its platform. And the, and the conversations were around, um, like, how can you be in, in markets like that um, that are so authoritarian and, and censoring? Um, there, at the time, Google was blocked, had been blocked in 25 different countries. And we thought that that was 
terrible, right? And, and it, was, it was YouTube and Blogger and Orkut, which no one remembers, but Google had a social network called Orkut, and it was in like three countries, but, and blocked, uh, in, in many. Uh, but the, like, at the time, we thought that the biggest threat to democracy and the company's mission and our ability to deliver service and access to information, we thought the biggest threat was to be blocked in a country. That content could not be made available. That information could not be, be, be discovered in those countries. And now, 10 years later, that feels really naive. Um, I think the thing that I did not foresee is that our openness would be exploited um, and that these platforms we created would be weaponized. Um, and I, I think that that's... So now when I look, look at some of the congressional testimony that's happening now with Mark Zuckerberg or with the, the array of social media platforms that had to testify about terrorism recently, and the questions are questions like, why are you allowing that content on your platform? Why aren't you getting it down faster? Why aren't you verifying the identity of the people who are there and turning them over to law enforcement? Those were all questions, by the way, that if it were done by China, we were going to resist strongly. But now those are the questions that our own government is asking, why aren't you doing this more and faster? And, and it's happening in places like Germany, right, and the UK and, and, and others. And um, I think that it is not wrong to ask what the what the solutions are to the weaponization of the platforms, but I'm very concerned about the direction of the, where, where policymakers are taking it. That's fascinating. Ten years ago, we were talking about the British trying to remove bullying content and Senator Lieberman trying to re remove some terrorist recruitment videos, but you're now saying that democratic governments like Germany and the U.S. and Britain are demanding the removal of far more speech than they were ten years ago. Is there any hope of encouraging the companies to follow the First Amendment in the face of this consumer and government pressure? And if so, how would you shore up their ability to follow First Amendment pressure? Well, the other countries are not going to follow the First Amendment. But <laughs> no, 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 of course not. Sorry, you're right. But, but Article 19, right, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the, the, the human, fundamental human right to free, free expression, there, there is that, and, and we should hold them to that. And if you haven't read... Um, David Kay, the, the UN Special Rapporteur's report on, on freedoms in social media, that's really well worth reading. Um, so, so I think that there is a backbone framework for all of the, I'm going to get this wrong, 172 countries who signed on for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and, and some who, who signed other similar types of agreements. Um, there's a backbone to help make these decisions. Um, I think that, that we're, we're in this really time of thinking that the solutions are about removing more content. Um, and that, to me, is a losing game at the end of the day. We can keep chipping away at this, but the, the honest answer is there has always been bad, destructive content. Um, there will always be. And the platforms, whether it's a newspaper or a social media platform, is going to make mistakes. And, and so now that I sit outside a company, I get to say things like this. We make mistakes. Right? We do not get it right. We either take down too much or too little. Um, and what you try to do is either make sure that you're not making really bad mistakes or that you have a rescue plan if you did make a mistake. Um, and, and so I'm not sh I understand that there has to be a, a conversation around some sort of 
restriction, regulation, I'm just not sure that content is necessarily the right place. Why aren't we looking harder at competition law? Right? Why aren't we looking at, at making sure that we're not fully dependent on these singular large platforms and instead encouraging the creation of what I understand Ethan might have talked about or, or I'd heard in a couple other um, rooms, right, other experiments in social media that are alternatives to, to the current places that were, were captured. Okay, so one big problem which has changed is the question of content standards and content removal, and you've said that there's more pressure than there was 10 years ago to remove content that might be protected by the First Amendment. There are at least two new problems that uh, folks have been talking about this morning, and they include uh, disinformation or fake news and polarization. And they relate to the fact that our discourse is now operating at a warp speed that the American founders would have feared, and we're being governed by Twitter mobs and passionately shared Facebook posts that can either be based on disinformation or can increase polarization. Describe, how would you put these two new problems, and to what degree are they new? Yeah, so, so I think, um, let me step back a little bit on sort of just the design of the platforms. Um, and... and Taking like Google search as, as like one marker, right? When, when in the design of Google search, the, the engineers were designing around certain pillars of, of, of value, which is we wanted comprehensiveness, relevance, and speed. Comprehensive enough to get as much content as we could, right? To fill the library. Relevance to be able to deliver the right answer at the right time based on your question. Um, and then speed to get it to you as quickly as possible. That all made sense for search. At a point in sort of the, the mid-2000s, when you had social media and this notion of the social graph on the rise, and personalization for the targeting of advertising, so behavioral advertising, went on the rise around the mid-2000s, those combined to change the pillars of design in the new platforms, um, which we now call social media, right? Which is engagement is the metric of success, how, how much time do I spend looking at various things on your platform instead of going off and finding it elsewhere? Um, personalization, which is not the same as relevance. It's not, does this answer your question? It's, here's more stuff you like. Um, and, and speed stays. So, so on those pillars, you have this engine for a rocket ship based on the most outrageous content that we can serve to you that keep you here for the engagement um, and increase, as we've, I've been hearing some of the, the research being done right now, but increase the polarization because of that, because of the, the way we act as humans when, when we communicate with each other. Um, I think that those pillars are super dangerous right now. Mm. And, 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 the, and we've kept this notion of speed that everything has to go so fast. You have to have more and more and more all the time that you're engaging with. What if we say no? Right? What if we, as, as a society, say, like, that's not the way I want to consume information anymore? Um, for me, and I, I've said this publicly in a couple of forums now, like, for me, I would prize a platform that was designed around authenticity of the content that I see. Not necessarily that I know exactly the person who, who uh, generated it, but, like, where, where did it travel from? What's the provenance? And... and, and the, the trustworthiness of a piece of information, what's the accuracy of it by some metric, and, and what's the context for understanding what I'm seeing? What if we took the 
incredibly talented engineers who are working on ads optimization and moved them to that? What would we end up with instead? Um, and, and I think that that's, we are now at a point where that's the self-reflection the companies should be doing. This is a huge insight. You're saying that the platforms themselves designed to promote personalization, relevance, and speed may be creating, it's really a Madisonian problem because Madison believed that the whole point of the Constitution was to slow down public discourse so that reason rather than passion could prevail. And uh, through the design of the platforms, we're finding a Madisonian nightmare where posts based on passion travel faster and further than those based on reason. So you're, if you were designing a slow speed movement for the internet <laughs> to slow down deliberation and promote Madisonian values, what are some of the philosophical and technological features that it would have? So first of all, I love talking to Jeff because he makes me sound so much more than I am. No, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true at all. These are, you are, in addition to the decider, the James Madison of the internet. So someone's got to do it, and it's got to be you. I'm going to take that one back to my kids. It's yours. Um, uh, so I think, I think some of the things that would be interesting, providing more context for the content that we see, would be really interesting. They would also be, as when I think about trying to bring that to like an engineer, they'd be like, that just causes more friction for the user. That's getting them off, like, the goal. And I'm like, yeah, but the goal may not be right anymore, so, like, why don't we try that? Um, what if... Uh, so, so there's a, a group uh, led by Deb Roy and Eugene Yee at MIT doing a, at Cortico doing some projects on visualizing how discussion happens. Um, and I was just looking at... They have this, like... It's like a tree. It's like one tweet is like a green leaf that comes up on, hey, I'm feeling X. And then they grow the tree as the conversation grows with red leaves being sort of um, uh, contrary or harsh or hostile content and green being uh, like more sort of supportive conversation. What if every conversation we had we could track, how is this conversation going? Is it getting more hostile or less hostile? Because one of the things that we're missing in, in the platforms we have is the social cues that tell us when we sit around a table, we look and see someone's face says, why would you say something like that to him, right? What, we need something equivalent to that on the platform. So what if we, we sort of prioritize that as like, how do we create more social cues for each other about how our conversations are going? That would slow us, slow us down, but it might be really interesting. I also think I've been toying with this idea, so forgive me because it's such a nascent idea, but what if... Um, Instead of what some countries have opted for, which is a, a media blackout before an election, so you saw that happen in France recently, it, it happens in Brazil, a certain number of days before an election, they basically just close off the media. Candidates cannot speak to the public. Um, I find that really distressing and frankly not very effective because then like all the shenanigans just move before the window, so that doesn't really help. Um, what if instead we stood up a neutral body, the FEC, I don't know who it would be, but some group that all of the media platforms would dump their content in for X, not forever, like not to like, like reveal all of your IP, but like literally just for some period before an election so that we could track where information comes from. Did it originate in a 4chan conversation? Did it, did it travel through, through Breitbart before it made it to Twitter and, and, and then ultimately into the mainstream media? I don't want to censor any of it, but what if we could just know where it came from? Mm. 
so that we would have context to understand how we evaluate it. That would be super interesting. That I don't think is where you necessarily would want to put your engineers right now because there's no incentive to do that. So I think there's a, there's a large public policy question about how do we change the incentives of what's getting built um, and, and where does, what kind of regulation does that look like? What about the role of the editor-in-chief? You were the decider for Google and found it challenging to make all of these content decisions. Is it, uh, and, and Facebook has contemplated prioritizing on its news feed stuff that people actually read. So some data suggests that fake news travels more quickly than real news because people pass along inflammatory headlines without reading them. Today I think there was some evidence on the other side. Do we need the Google and Facebook and Twitter deciders to be deciding what people should see in order to provide context rather than just what they want to see and what would that editorial function look like? Yeah, so, so this is where when you're not in a company you get to say, I don't know the answer to that, but that's a really interesting question. Um, so, so here's what I think is, is very hard about that. I don't think I trust a private company any more than I trust a government to decide what content we see. So I'll start from that place. <laughs> <laughs> I'll share that one as well. <laughs> um, but I do think we need, which, which tells me this, like, then, then this is not just a solution from the tech companies, right? We need to engage all of society and how to fix this. One of the problems to me, if you, if you look nationally and then it's exacerbated when you look globally, right, is even if you're a tech company and you want to get a diverse array of content, it's not always there or you don't necessarily know how to find it. So, so I think, in, like, for example, in this country, I think the demise of local news has had a catastrophic effect on our politics. Um, and so all of the conversation exists at this national level, which is highly polarizing, as opposed to, hey, locally, I care a lot about whether that bridge is getting built or my water is clean or my kids are going to the right schools. And, and those are places where community can be built, but we don't have anyone on the ground writing that news. And so the question for us as a society is how do we encourage the development of more of that local news so that we can feed that into the tech Twitter streams or Facebook streams or, or, or YouTube streams to counter some of the others. And, and what I worry about is that we've just lost some of that conversation. And that's on us, right? That's not the tech companies weren't responsible for also building local news. It is on us to ensure the success of that type of content. That is exacerbated, frankly, at a, at a global level where it is really hard for a company sitting in Mountain View or Menlo Park or Seattle or wherever to decide what's the trustworthy news and the widest array of news on the ground in a country that I have never been to or may not be permitted to be in. How do I surface the right information from that? How do I find trustworthy sources? And, and that is really, really difficult. Um, and that is a global project for us then. Right, which is to ensure press freedom globally. It is to ensure that what we had, I think, 10 years ago believed we could be, which is to be the voice for those who are unheard. Somehow, as societies, we actually need to be having more participation at that level. 
The idea of shoring up local news is a wonderful Brandeisian solution. <laughs> Louis Brandeis is a hero of both of ours. He denounced the curse of bigness. He thought that only on local levels could reason thrive. And by prioritizing local news, the platforms would create a market for them, which could be a virtuous cycle. Facebook has proposed creating a Supreme Court for Facebook. What do you think about the idea of a Supreme Court for Facebook? Should they create it? And if so, what should it look like from the appointment and nomination and confirmation procedures to the yeah. substantive law they apply to the, uh, to, to, to the possibility of uh, an appeal? <laughs> yeah, okay, so like, um, I'm not going to comment specifically on the Facebook thing. Kate Klonick and uh, I think it's one other author who I'm currently forgetting just wrote an op-ed, which I thought was really good. Um, I'm not going to dismiss any possible solution, right? Because we clearly, there is no single silver bullet for this, so we need many different solutions. And I think the notion of an independent, I'm assuming it's independent, third body that makes this sort of oversees or, or provides advice on whether you've made good or bad content decisions, that seems to answer the mail on one of the key criticisms for these platforms, which is about transparency of their decision-making and accountability for that. And so it matters very much then, is it independent? Who's paying for it? What's, like, who's getting appointed and on what basis? And does, do we really expect some panel of, like, could it be larger than 50 to make decisions for the world? Because that's a lot, right? But uh, Facebook, I was just talking with Elliot Shrake, they've got 30,000 people working on content um, issues. So, like, how does a small panel of a court really manage all of that? Uh, I, I think there's lots of detail questions uh, to, to deal with in, in, in that. Um, but but we should try, right? I, again, and I, I think that that's an accountability and transparency answer, but I don't think it gets to, you can't have like every piece of content going up, how many, like it's hundreds of hours going up on YouTube per minute at this point. Like not all of those are gonna get seen by a court, right? And so you're still gonna have the issue of content that comes down um, and at the decision of private companies or their contractors. Um, you still have to wrestle with those choices. And I also think, I think you still have that global problem, right? Which it's really hard to capture global nuance when you're a singular body. And I'm not sure it's even appropriate to have some singular body wherever it is they sit, Geneva or whatever, making decisions for very local communities. Last question and last words to the audience. What's so exciting about our conversations, all of them, is that you are challenging us to think about the internet in constitutional terms, not legal ones, but philosophically, you're challenging us to resurrect the frictions or the cooling mechanisms, as Madison called them, that will allow in the online space the same uh, reason deliberation that the framers thought was necessary on the internet space. You and I have talked about uh, the possibility of the National Constitution Center, along with many of the organizations in this room, coming up with a project that would apply this constitutional thinking to create a slow speed movement for the internet and would try to identify philosophical and technological solutions for promoting reason online. If you were gonna design a charter or mission for this project, what would it include, and why is it important for everyone in this room to join us? Um, oh, that's a big question, Jeff. I think, uh, I don't know that I have a charter in mind. I do think, um, 
there is a uniqueness to these social platforms, um, particularly given how dominant they are in, in our discourse, right, where uh, we need some greater guideposts than we've had to date. Um, and, and in service of democratic values um, and human rights frameworks. And, and so how we institutionalize those and propagate them and, and get people to design for them. Like, we can do all the research we want. I think so, I was, what I heard, like, some incredible social science research is being done now on, like, what is useful conversation, what is a public, a healthy public sphere. All of that is so useful. But then the question is, how does that become a design, right? And how does it become either a business model or, to Ethan's point, a public service-driven uh, model that, that we can support, <laughs> Um, and, but I think the first point is like agreement on the principles of what we're here for. Ladies and gentlemen, for her contribution to promoting reason on the internet, <laughs> please join me in thanking the decider, Nicole Wong. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Tech Talk. You can watch the video of Nicole and Jeffrey on CDT's YouTube channel. You'll also find other videos from the Future of Speech Online there. Fair warning, you might find yourself watching the entire amazing event. I'm Brian Wazolowski. Thanks so much for listening.